Turn to John chapter 13. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, first this morning, I want to pray for Greg Fields and Tracy. Thank you for two close friends, and thank you for just a sweet, shared uh, gospel, shared stewardship with a little plot of soil in this community. I want to pray for Greg as a brother in um, this uh, challenging gut-wrenching work of eldering. Lord, I pray that you will just overwhelm him with the gospel daily, that you'll fill him up, and uh, that he'll be, so, he'll be so filled that he'll be filled to overflowing, that he'll gush over onto his wife first and his kids, and then onto a people. Lord, knowing what you are serving at his table, or at your table at Westminster, I am shocked that people aren't gushing in that building to feast and dine on the Word that's so ably exposed. Lord, we beg that You will just grow that body for Your glory, not for anybody's fame or renown, but in spite of Greg. Grow that people so there will be a shared people, a shared uh, fellow people in this community that have a a like mind about this Christ-centered gospel. We pray for Greg and Tracy that they will just enjoy Christ so much that they will brave the highs and lows of a difficult ministry. Lord, we pray for that little body that they will be overwhelmed with a Christ that's so ample and a gospel that's so shocking and scandalous. We pray that as we serve together in this community that we will truly have a spirit of hopefulness and a spirit of cheering for each other and for Christ among each other. Lord, regarding this body in the next few minutes, I just pray that people will see that it is what it is. We are who we are. There's no spin. This is a spin-free zone. We're just authentic and genuine. We're not trying to impress. There's no polish. It's no performance. But a simple, ordinary people step into the throne room with a book that's so mighty, with a spirit that's so amazing. We just pray that you will have your way with us. Pray that as a result of this time that we spend in the next few minutes, that we will grow downward in humility. Pray that you'll take this world's message of self-esteem and self-image and replace that with self-awareness coupled with God-esteem. That you'll overwhelm us with the distance that grace had to reach. And that we'll worship harder and truer and we'll be more focused in our pursuits and our loves and our passions. That we'll be more teachable. We'll be lowly. And that you'll be glorified as a result of that. I pray that you'll speak in spite of me. I pray for a wee bin and a huge gospel this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In teaching and preaching through John, I frequently go back 
are frequently referred to the purpose of the book. If you were to read a letter from somebody and didn't really understand why it was written or the purpose of it, it might be hard to take away what you needed to take away from it. So I frequently, and studying to teach and preach from John, you can stay in John 13, but I want to share with you where I go frequently. It's in chapter 20, verse 30. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. This is John, the writer of the book of John, writing these words. He's explaining to us, he's explaining to his readers and everyone between them and us, chronologically, why he wrote this book. We have three other Gospels. This may have been the latest writing of a Gospel, 90 A.D. or something like that. Why? The other three Gospels seem to do a pretty good job of capturing all the details of Christ's ministry. So there's a purpose for this one, and John is explaining why he wrote these things. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, my book, my letter called John. He did a bunch of stuff. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This isn't a collection of facts, it is an argument. And I don't mean argument like two people bickering. I mean a presentation of the truth. And these things are written so that you may believe. That's you, the reader, who read this in 90-something A.D. And that's us, the readers, the feasters, the gnars this morning, 2,000 years later, that are feasting on it. These things were written so that we may believe. That's how critical these words are. And that's why we're taking our time with them. We're not in a rush. That's why we're going to savor them. We're going to feast on them because they're the words of life. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's not a collection of facts. This is a gospel tract. But some of you have either been handed one or you've seen one at some time, a little gospel track that you can read in about five minutes. While I'm thankful for those things, and I know that many have entered the, the kingdom through an exposition of that, this is an ancient one. It's a lot longer. And it's worth savoring, taking our time on. As I consider the purpose of this book, and I realize that it's just not a collection of facts, but there's something bigger and something larger and something deeper, then I realize, first of all, there's an outer layer to everything that you see in this book. There's an outer and obvious layer, for example, that Jesus can turn water to wine. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I don't know what y'all can do, but I don't know anybody that can just say, hey, fill up those things over there, and when they pour out, this going to be wine. And not any old cheap sherry cooking wine, but fine wine. A couple hundred dollar a bottle of wine. Serious wine. It's pretty amazing. That's the outer layer. This same Jesus can also walk on water. That's pretty amazing. I don't know anybody that can do that. That's a great picture. He can also turn a few loaves and fishes into a feast. Amazing, but yet still the outer layer. He can heal a blind man. Also pretty amazing. But still just the outer layer. He can even raise the dead. The outer layer. If this book was just a collection of facts, we would just be left with those and we go, okay, Jesus did all those things. That's pretty amazing. 
But the beauty is this book is so much deeper. There's this outer layer to these movements and these events and these things that we're seeing. But remember, John wrote these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's not just a collection of facts. There's deep truths and meanings behind each of these things. I'm going to call them the inner nougat. There's the outer layer. There's an inner nougat to each one of those. It's not just that he can turn water to wine, but that he brings to the redemptive story something that's as different between the old covenant and the new covenant as water and fine wine. It's not just that he can walk on water, but it's that he made H2O and that he owns gravity and that through him and by him all things were created. There's an inner nougat. It's not just that he can take some loaves and fishes and turn it into a feast, but that his nourishment may look meager like a few loaves and fishes, but that it's ample and abundant, and it can feed the people, the saints that are gathered over the ages from the far corners, from the four winds, over the ages. (laughs) So it's more than feeding 5,000. It's feeding us 2,000 years later. It's the inner nougat. Not just that he can... Give a man sight who's been blind his whole life, but that he illuminates the mind and the heart and the eyes of the heart with life-giving sight so that we can know him and worship him. Not just that he raises the dead, but that he is the only voice. His is the only voice that calls beyond the obstacle, the boundary of death. And the only one that is able to do that, to say, Lazarus, come forth. Ben, come forth. Believers of Cross Point Fellowship, come forth. That's the nougat. It's not just a collection of facts. It's an incredible book. The beauty in this book is that children can wade in it. And the whales can swim in it. The last few weeks in regards to the servanthood of Christ, we've been waiting with the children. It's been rich. We've taken this command to go do as I've done. We've taken it in context now to appreciate that he came from the throne room with myriads and myriads of angels singing about him all day long. That he came that vast distance from throne room to upper room to his knees to dirty fishermen feet. While that's awesome, that's still just waiting with the children. Today we're going to swim with the whales. Turn back to John 13. Today we're going for the nougat. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God with myriads and myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels singing about him, with elders, 24 white-headed regal elders, chunking their their, their crowns at him, with four critters flying around him, singing, Holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb, knowing that he came from God and that he was going back to God, this God rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what, what I'm about to do to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet then only, but also my hands and my head. What I want to do in these next few minutes is I want to show you four clues to figure out that this foot washing may be the most beautiful and powerful image that we have, illustration that we have of the gospel, at least in the book of John that we've engaged so far. It may be the most powerful image that we've considered yet in the book of John. It is cross-educating, it is salvation-illuminating, and it is gospel-illustrating. This little old simple foot washing that we can often walk away with, hey, let me go wash some, uh, some other people's feet. We can walk away with the outer layer missing in the nougat, not swimming with the whales. This thing, this foot washing, is cross-educating, salvation illuminating, and gospel illustrating. Here are the first of the four clues. Verse 1. It says, Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Okay, if you're looking in your Bible, you see that that's not red letters. You know those words aren't from Christ. They're written by John, the narrator of this book. And he's regarding to the end, the end of something. And what it's going to be is the end, essentially, the end of his earthly ministry and the end of his messages. The next few pages, if you're paying attention in the book of John, is a sea of red. He's in his final moments with them. He is going to have a resurrection. He is going to have a time where he walks the earth, but the concentration of his teaching is coming to a head right here. And he's loving them to the end. This end, I believe, is pointing to the whips. It's pointing to the spit. It's pointing to the thorns and the nails and a cross that he's going to submit to only a few hours later. This sea of red that we may spend the next couple of years in, took place over the course of hours. He is hours from the cross at this moment. And I think this foot washing, if you were in your last hours and you knew it was your last hours, you would want to be saying things and doing things that would matter. (laughs) You would want to be saying things and doing things that would be remembered forever. And this foot washing is one of those things. He says he loved them to the end. The context for the foot washing is the end. It's an important demonstration. His last words on the cross at 3 p.m. or so, the next day, will be, it is finished. And I wonder if John, as he wrote these things, having loved them to the end, if he's thinking about that statement, it is finished. The context for the foot washing is the end. The second clue that the cross is connected to the foot washing, that the gospel and salvation is connected to the foot washing, is in verse 2. In verse 2, it begins with the words, during supper. Now, what supper? If you're paying attention to the sweep of the story, you realize that this isn't just any old supper. 
This isn't just hanging out and having some Chick-fil-A. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the final supper where he's talking about having a broken body and he's talking about blood gushing. And it's during that supper that he stands and that he takes off his outer garments and he kneels and he washes feet. This image of foot washing that we can take so lightly illustrates his cross and it's the context for the supper. The remembrance meal when the people of God remember his cross and his suffering and his blood and the finality and perfection of this sacrifice, this is the setting where he's kneeling and washing dirty fishermen feet. The third clue that this just isn't some ordinary, insignificant, outer layer message, but that this is a nougat picture, this foot washing, is in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he, listen to this, had come from God and was going back to God. It says next, knowing these things, that he rose from supper. And he washed feet. The finality, the exclamation point of his ministry is right here. And this is the context where he rises from this supper and he washes feet. He's in the final hour. He even referred to that period of his ministry. We are coming into the hour. Now is the hour where I'm going to be glorified. And what he did here may be the most cross-illustrating thing that he has done yet or since in our Bibles. His time with them is waning. It is sunset on his ministry. The last clue, and my favorite, is also in verse 4. It says, He rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments. I've been studying this outer garments. I knew that there was something there as I'm chewing on that. John doesn't introduce these facts, just not a collection of facts. There's deep truth that he's conveying here so that we may believe on Christ. And this picture of laying aside the outer garments, it takes me to Hebrews chapter 2 or chapter 12. Christy and I memorized a verse a long time ago. You don't even need to turn there. Let me share this with you. It's encouraged me in our ministry over the years to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that's set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Who for the proximity that he had to the Father, who for the myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels that he had singing about him all day long, which he rated and continues to rate, which had 24 elders chunking their crowns at him. It said four creatures singing about how worthy he is. Who for the joy that set before him endured the cross. And this foot washing, this imagery of taking off his outer garments is not just him, I need to get these out of the way so I can wash some feet. It is a picture of what he did in the cross the very next day. If you don't think there's a connection, do you remember what happened to his garments? A few hours later, they're casting lots. The soldiers are casting lots for them. I found, actually, that in this time, whenever a conqueror came into a new land and he whipped their behinds, the first thing he did is he went to the king's palace and he took all his clothing. It's the picture of the premium chumping. 
Man, I got chumped. I don't even have any clothes left. And this God, this one that had everything in his hands, this one that is at the right hand of the Father, who had the joy that set before him, endured the cross. He laid aside his garments. They weren't stripped from him. This foot washing and even the movement of it, even the rhythm of it, even the actions of it, is a picture of the cross. What he does with his attire during the foot washing was a picture of his willingness to be conquered, his submission to be plundered out of obedience to the Father and out of love for his own. So this foot washing is no ordinary foot washing. It's tied to the gospel. It illustrates the gospel. It's not just a little short lesson on, go be a servant. If you had a few hours left, would you give something light like that? If you had a few hours left and you were going to a cross to be brutally crucified in front of everyone, your movements, your words would matter. And they would have depth. And that's what's happening here. This foot washing is a visual of the work of the gospel as it invades the life of the believer. And here are the parts. Christ as the divine washer. He's playing the part of Christ the next day as the final sacrifice. The foot washing act itself of chapter 13 is an image of the crucifixion of chapter 19. The water used for washing the feet in chapter 13 is an image of the blood that cleanses us of our sin in chapter 19. And 2,000 years later. And the dirt on Peter's feet. That's who we're going to be this morning is Peter. The dirt, the toe jam, the nasty stuff on Peter's feet is an image of the dirty, vile, unsightly sin that we pick up along the journey of faith. Along the journey of life. I want to do in these next few minutes share five reasons why this gospel illustration should be treasured by Crosspoint Fellowship. Here's the first reason. It shows us that the one wronged is the divine washer. It shows us that the one, capital O, one wronged is the divine washer. If you know the story of how it unfolds in these last hours, then you know exactly what Peter is going to do to Christ in the next few hours. As the cock crows, he will have denied Christ three times. He will betray this Christ that he has followed for three years. And it is the guiltless one who is washing the feet of the guilty. I've really been... Searching to try and understand that. I, I, I've been asking people, everybody that I can talk with the last few weeks, have you ever had your feet washed? I'm asking people. And some I'm like, no, no, I've never had that. And a bunch of the ladies are like, well, yeah, I've had my feet washed when I get a pedicure. I didn't have any men confess to a pedicure. <laughs> Although I bet some of the more metro among us have had it done. But I want to understand this. I want to understand what's going on with Peter and the way he's engaging Christ 
And I want to understand the gravity of the one wronged being the divine washer. And I've thought about the response that I've gotten from the ladies. Oh, I've, you know, I've had my feet washed when I was having a pedicure. It was no big deal. And I think the reason it was no big deal is because you paid them to wash your feet. They owed you the service. So who cares if you got dirty toenails? I paid you, right? And I'll even tip you. So you owe me this foot washing. The way that we can begin to digest and take in what's really taking place here is switch the payment around. Don't switch the service around or the movement, but switch the payment around and you'll begin to taste what is taking place on the floor of this upper room. Imagine someone paying you to wash your feet. Imagine someone approaching you, hey, instead of you paying me the, I don't know how much a pedicure costs, 30 bucks. Say, I want to pay you 30 bucks to wash your feet. The little uncomfortable feeling that you're imagining happening, that's just the beginning of what Peter must have felt. That's just the beginning of what's really taking place where we're going, oh, that's kind of awkward. I'm not sure that I'm game for that. Uh, Okay, I'll submit to it, but I I don't think you're going to get your money's worth. There's something just weird about this. Now take it to the level that's really moving the direction of what's taking place here. Imagine that the payment is great. It's not 30 bucks. But imagine that the payment is great and that the washer is someone that you have great respect for. It's not just an acquaintance at the local manicure shop. It's someone that you hold in great high esteem and that it costs them everything to wash your feet. Then as you're imagining sitting in the seat of Peter, sitting in the place of Peter where he's about to wash your feet, then maybe we're starting to taste and get a sense of what that must have been like. You're, wait a second, I hold you in too high esteem for you to do this, and I owe you, if anything. But that what he's doing in his movement is he's demonstrating that the payment is great and that the one wronged is the divine washer. If you're imagining the feelings that you have there, that sheepishness, that embarrassment about the dirt then we're starting to get a feel for what's taking place here. It's really hard to imagine this person, this person we hold in high esteem, who's given everything to wash our feet, that they're going to get their money's worth. The reality is, is that if we can appreciate this foot washing as an image of the gospel, then what we realize is that this high and majestic Lord is the one washing your feet in salvation. And that the only way you'll have a share with Him is if you'll submit to the humbling work of letting Him deal with your dirt. The second reason why this gospel illustration should be treasured by Crosspoint Fellowship is that it shows us our humanity in the work of salvation. I was thinking about Peter's reluctance to have Christ wash his feet, and I think it's a reflection of our human resistance in dealing with our dirt. I appreciated Brad's message last week in pointing out what we're prone to, loving darkness because we don't like our sins and our dirt to be brought to light. I was thinking about this picture here with Peter and his reluctance that 
picture that we would much rather keep our feet under the table and our moist dirt comfortable surviving within the dark confines of our Brogans or our Jack Purcells or our Chuck T's. I pass on getting that dirt out in the open. It's private in there and we like it private. We're ashamed of our dirt and we'd rather deal with the discomfort of the dirt than expose it. So we spin and we hide and we explain away or we blame others or we even blame those who are trying to care and rip our shoes off to get it in the light. The beauty is that God does a work in some. God does a work in some where He gives some a keen and stark awareness of the dirt on their feet. Daniel, our youngest, I've never seen anybody in my life that is more focused on dental hygiene than Daniel McGraw. He's four years old. He's got a collection of toothbrushes that's matching 15, 20 toothbrushes now from every land. It's amazing. His focus on dental awareness is a pretty cool picture of what God gives some in having a focus on our sin and a recognition of our guilt and the dirt that's on our feet. And we're looking at it, and like Brad pointed out last week, we're looking at it, we're going, it is what it is. I'm not going to spin it. I'm not going to blame somebody else. It's right there, and I'm wretched, and I'm dirty, and I just can't bear it. I've got to do something with it. And this terrible burden of awareness of our sin is really a treasure. Because it's from that burden where we're ripping off our shoes and saying, please deal with my dirt. I don't want it anymore. I was thinking about this picture of foot washing and showing our humanity in the work of salvation. If you find somebody that has a real keen, stark awareness of their own sin, but they don't have Christ, then what you'll find is a broken, hopeless, empty person the beauty is that's cultivated soil but when you add christ and the gospel and the foot washing work of the cross into the equation where then you'll find a humble joyful lowly amazed worshiper of christ i don't know what you've got otherwise i don't know if we can be a believer without being that first part broken hopeless and empty (laughs) I don't know if we get our feet washed unless we're going there dirty. And I can't do anything about it. I'm ripping off my Chuck T's and I'm going to reckon with this with the only one who can deal with it. The third reason why this gospel illustration should be treasured by Crosspoint Fellowship is that it helps us visualize our dirt. I love the sweet tools of John so far that have acquainted us with our dirt. John chapter 11 has been one. If you remember, we had a series of sermons that went on about three months called the He Stinketh series. Whenever Jesus told them to remove the stone from in front of the tomb where Lazarus was buried, I think it was Martha. It may have been Mary. I think it was Martha. He says, oh, we can't do that. He'll stink. He's been dead four days. And the King James put it so beautifully. He stinketh. What we considered over the course of two or three months 
was this reality, if that's the picture of the cross or the picture of the gospel, is that we all stinketh. And I love the visuals of our dirt. And this foot washing is a visual of our dirt. If we can go through the work and the journey of sitting in Peter's place, and if we can look down and see the dirt and the toe jam between our toes, then we're going to get equated with the work that Christ has done in the cross. I don't know if we even think we need a Savior apart from that recognition. And this is one of those acquainting tools where we sit in Peter's seat. We get acquainted with passages like there are in Romans. Turn there. I want to show you a few of these. Romans chapter 3. Page 941 of your pew Bible. This passage, in verse 10, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And insert your name in there. Ben is not righteous, no, not one. Ben does not understand. Ben does not seek for God. I've turned aside. I've become worthless. I don't do good. Not even one of you. That's why every name can be inserted in there. Our throats are an open grave. We use our tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under our lips. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before Ben's eyes. Through journeys like John chapter 12 and the He Stinka series, and through this engagement here where we're seeing Peter submit to getting his dirty, nasty feet washed, we're realizing, I'm realizing that we're being acquainted with our dirt, and this is a treasure. And passages like this, I have on the, the tip of my finger, they're, they're on my fingertips. I know exactly where they are in my Bible because I go to them and then they point me Christward. Because I go, yes, I am not righteous. No, not one. And then I look at verses like 23 in the same chapter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Turn to chapter 14. Just in case we read that Romans 3 passage, the first passage, and you're going, man, I'm, sw- I'm not swift to shed blood. I don't know that I have the venom of asps underneath my tongue or my lips. Look at this passage in chapter 14, verse 23. Second sentence in that passage says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I want you to appreciate the condemning words that are in that passage. I shared with the worship team this morning, I've shared with others that my prayer, my burden for this morning is that we can all see our dirt. And if you walk away from this passage right here without seeing your dirt, then you've missed it. You may have let Romans chapter 3 miss you, but you cannot let this miss you. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The reality is that I can stand up here and I can preach and sin because I can preach in the flesh. And I can preach trusting my own ability. I can preach more concerned about what you think of me. I can preach being more concerned about church growth than I am about faith and trust in the living God and His ability to awaken and create and build the people through the exposition of His Word. I can preach and sin. 
When I consider passages like this, that for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, I think about how many meals over the course of my life where all I'm doing is sitting and taking nourishment, where I'm sinning. I might even say a blessing beforehand, but I'm still sinning because it was just this little cursory thing just to get the check in the block, but I wasn't really praying. God nourished me spiritually more than this food fills me physically. I pray that I will enjoy the God of the food more than I enjoy the food. Have any of you prayed that today? This week? That's dining in faith. This passage right here is so condemning, it basically says that we all have dirty feet. The reality is we can sing songs about God, and if we're more focused on the volume, or more focused on what it sounds like, or more focused on what somebody's wearing on the praise team, then guess what? We're not singing in faith. We can sing about God and be in sin. I'm not picking on anybody in this. What I'm saying is we all got dirt. Every single one of us have dirt between our toes. What I want you to appreciate is other passages. You don't need to turn there like Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, the things that we think are even fine, are but filthy, polluted garments. I thought about the irony of that. That the best I have to offer is a filthy garment, and then here Christ is taking off his own garments. And he's going to provide a fine garment. He's going to take away our dirties. And he's going to give us clean ones in his place because of his work, not because of our own. And the reality is we're the ones with the dirty feet. We're the ones with the dirty garments. I know what the world's message is right now is to build your self-esteem and build your self-image and your self-worth. And when I look in the Bible, I don't see any messages on self-esteem and building self-image. I see messages on biblical humility and saving faith. And I don't even think those are even compatible with lessons on self-image or finding yourself. So if you're all about self-esteem and self-image, then you're hearing passages like this, that no one's righteous, no, not one. Their mouths are an empty grave. And you're thinking, I don't like that. I want to find a place that doesn't deal with those passages. I want to find a preacher that is more positive. It's building my self-image. Well, I want to tell you that I'm more concerned with your self-awareness in light of the glory of God. I'm more concerned with your God-esteem than your self-esteem. I desperately hope and pray for a severe consciousness and awareness of your unworthiness. I pray that as you read John chapter 11, you will see yourself in Lazarus. I pray that as you read John chapter 13, you will see yourself sitting with dirty feet before the living God as He washes your feet and realize that you don't rate it. Nobody does. As we sit in Peter's seat, we see the visual work of salvation. We see the very real dirt on every single foot. All have sinned and all fall short. We see that sin is pervasive, persistent, and insidious. And it's between every toe. 
And we've picked it up along the way. Period. Nobody's without it. The fourth reason Cross Point Fellowship should cherish and treasure this gospel illustration is it helps us see that we can't do anything about our dirt. It's thinking back of the biblical picture of how hard we tried covering our sin and thinking back to the very beginning where Adam and Eve sinned. God comes looking for them in the cool of the day, calling Adam, where are you? And they're hiding off in a bush, and what are they wearing while they're hiding off in that bush? A couple of fig leaves. I've never worn fig leaves myself, but I would expect that fig leaves wouldn't do the job for long. If you've ever pulled a leaf from a tree, you know after a period of time that boy gets kind of crackly. And it kind of breaks. And you can imagine how pitiful these jokers looked wearing fig leaves. And from the very beginning, God demonstrated the gospel in that he takes the life of an innocent, the first known death. And there was blood shed to cover their sin. And he took skin from that animal and he covered them with garments. Our attempts at covering our sin are pretty pathetic and pitiful. And the reality is we can't deal and reckon with our own sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Between those two passages connected to sin, the wages of sin is death, and we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we can go to the next step to realize that a dead man can't do anything about his deadness. (laughs) What's he going to do? It is beyond hopeless. We can spray Febreze on our nasty, dirty feet. We can get some cool socks to try and cover them. We can get some of those cool shoes. What was the name of them? Jack Purcells, Chuck T's, Keens, Crocs. You can get whatever you want, but you can't deal and cover with the, cover up that sin. We are stuck with that sin, and our only hope is that God won't notice it or that he won't mind. But the problem is our God is a holy God, and holiness reckons with sin. And when sinful man sins against the holy God, something's got to die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the wages of sin is death. So the reality is we've got dirty feet, and we can't do anything about it. We are truly dead in our trespasses and sins and our toe jam. And without the blood cleansing work of the cross, it's going to stay. And that something that's going to die to reckon with a holy God will be you in eternity. What this picture shows us is that we can't do anything about our, our own dirt, but someone can Jesus told Peter when Peter objected, he said, unless I wash your feet, you have no share with me. I'm the divine washer, period. Not you, Peter. You can't wash your own. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they can't wash them. James and John's mommy can't wash them. I'm the only one that can deal with it. And unless I wash your feet, you have no share with me. It's just us and him, period. The last reason why this gospel illustration should be treasured by Crosspoint Fellowship is my favorite. 
Turn to Isaiah chapter 61. This is my favorite of the batch because it's so otherworldly. I don't care how you try to spin this, you could not present this to the world where the, where the world would like it. But there are some, those sin aware people, those toothbrush gatherers, that saying, okay, I'm ready to reckon with it and I'll embrace it. This fifth reason. It's because the foot washing portrays those he saves as a desperately needy bunch. Listen to this passage in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Sounds like a needy bunch so far. We got the poor, we got the brokenhearted, we got captives, we got the bound, we got those who are mourning, and to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. So they also got ashes on their heads. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And why does He give these things, this good news? Why does this Christ bring the good news to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the bound, the mourning, the dirty-footed, the in, the, those who are wearing ashes, those who are faint of spirit? So that, right there in verse 3, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Anybody that knows Him says, that dude's not an oak. <gasps> that dude's needy. But he deals with the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the mourning, the faint of spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Who does the work of salvation? The Lord. That this needy bunch can be called oaks of righteousness, the planting, the sweet, incredible work of the Lord, that he may be glorified. (laughs) This is the beauty of this foot washing is that it portrays us as a needy bunch that need to have our foot feet washed. Coupled with passages like this, we realize that this good news is for the poor, the dirty-footed, the broken-hearted, the captives, the bound, the dirty-footed, the mourning, the ashes-wearing, the dirty-footed, the faint of spirit, the dirty-footed, and that this dirty-footed needy bunch may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. How many times have you ever heard people say, man, you just need a crutch? You're just in the gospel in this religion thing because you need a crutch. I want to tell you how often over the years that has offended me. It doesn't offend me anymore. Because now in light of passages like this, in light of recognizing myself as four days decaying in a tomb, needing Christ to call me forth from death to life, and someone says, you need a crutch, I go, yeah, what's wrong with a crutch? Who's ever looked at a crutch and said, oh, that thing is despicable? What's wrong with a crutch? I need a crutch. This foot washing should teach us to embrace that accusation because Christ is indeed a crutch and so much more. Because without Him, 
I'd lay lame with the dude that laid, he was 38 years old laying at the pool of Bethesda. Without that crutch of Christ, I'd lay lame there. Without him, I'd be decaying with Lazarus. Without him, I'd grope blindly through life. Without this crutch, I'd know no contentment, and a peace that passes understanding would be an untouchable figment. You think I'm needy? You betcha! Like a little old sheep that's needy for a shepherd. Yeah. I used to be ashamed of that indictment. And now when I see my dirty feet with pervasive, persistent, insidious sin, and I see Christ as divine washer, it makes me cling to Christ like the lame cling to a crutch. You bet I'm needy. It makes me not just simply endure my helplessness, but my helplessness, helplessness becomes my very song. That's the best thing i got going is that I'm helpless. It becomes my banner that I am hopeless and helpless without my Christ. We are lame, helpless, dirty, needy, dependent people. And that's who he came for. Good news is for the poor, the dirty-footed, the broken-hearted, the captives, the bound, the mourning, the ashes wearing, the faint of spirit, that this dirty-footed people may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Next week is going to be part two of this message. And... Um, I didn't want to try and tackle it this morning. We're actually, next week, we're going to kind of reckon with a medley of other dirty-footed saints. They're all over our Bible. A bunch of lowly, dirty-footed saints. And we're also going to deal with some dirty-footed saints since the Bible was complete. Some believers over the ages. And then we're going to celebrate the very one thing, the very one People gathering work that this foot washing illustrated that gathered all these people over the ages and is continuing to gather them. We'll celebrate this this next week. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you'll teach us to cherish this foot washing, that even at the thought and the notion of it, we'll see a cross. And we'll see dirt. And we'll see its permanence. And we'll see all the Brillo pads in the world. All the scrub brushes in the world. The most powerful lye soap in the world that can't remove it. And then we'll see the only thing that does the sweet, red, rich blood of Jesus Christ. Pray that as a result of that, that we will be recognized as a needy, crutch-bearing, Christ-adoring, cross-clinging people. Pray that we'll be known as lowly, humble, teachable. We'll be amazed that the one, the only one who should have never washed feet was the only one who can. 
teach us to worship, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.